Hello and welcome to another episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. Today is Monday, June 28th, 2021, and this is episode 24A. I hope everybody is having a pretty good start to your week or whatever day or time of the week it is that you are listening to this episode. Uh, this is a, a episode on a Monday, so we are going to do the regular comic book pull list. We have some good stuff to talk about this week, and I have decided to do everything chronologically this week. So we're going to go through the comic book pull list chronologically and not in any kind of other special order. So after that, we will talk about the Bad Batch episode 9. I thoroughly enjoyed this episode uh, for a lot of reasons, so we will completely go over all of that uh, and have a lot of fun with that. And we will wrap up the episode with some discussion on Harley Quinn. <laughs> there has been, uh, she has been in media, um, in the news, I should say, quite a bit recently. So I kind of wanted to go over why and some of the reasons that she is being talked about and the relevancy of those, you know, reasons and things. So we will talk about all of those things when we get to the end of the episode. So starting off with the comic book pull list and then doing uh, Star Wars The Bad Batch episode 9 and wrapping things up with the Harley Quinn discussion. <laughs> But before we really get into it here, you can find me online, my social medias for Instagram. I am Anna with the comics. That's all I really post is comics, so sticks with the theme there. <laughs> my Twitter is Savage She Geek. I don't use it nearly as much as anything else. My website, uh, because that is also a thing that I do, it's my blog, is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. You have to have the Weebly extension in there if you uh, actually want to get any more, because I do not pay for it. Uh, I did post for up until about six months ago, I posted a lot of written discussions and reviews of comics series uh, themes going on and comics, stuff like that. I have pretty much replaced all of those written reviews with discussions for this podcast because it does end up being a lot of work doing both. Um, so I do, to kind of continue posting things on my site, I do post my podcast notes which is the loose outline of things that I want to go over for the podcast, uh, sometimes more or less loose than others, but it also includes, for the weeks that I do pull lists, it includes all of my pull lists and the notes that I put for the pull list uh, titles. It includes my pick lists on the Friday episodes for all of my pick list titles that I discuss and what I discussed about that. Um, so that is available if you would prefer to more or less read the podcast rather than listen to it, or for anyone who is hearing impaired who cannot listen to it, uh, that is still available for them to uh, be involved and follow along with the rest of what's going on. Other than that, um, you can... Let's see, I do have a TikTok, but I don't really use it. <laughs> so don't, don't really worry about that. Um, and I will be starting up an Etsy store. I've been kind of meandering pondering these ideas um, for a little while and as long as I can get them to actually be put into place the way that I plan hopefully I will be uh, having a little Etsy store with some uh, superhero comic book alternative you know just kind of fun stuff uh, that I will be making um, including potentially stickers 
Um, we'll see how, how my artistic designs kind of end up being, but that's something to look forward to, um, if you're at all interested in those things, because I don't have any ads on this podcast. I don't have ads on my website or YouTube or anything like that. So I don't make money off of any of this right now. So, um, I would like to though, that would be great. And any time that I don't have to spend worrying about making money somewhere else, I could spend, uh, putting effort into this podcast, which that actually brings up. I do also have a YouTube page. Um, it is a uh, sensational she geek. I post all of my podcast episodes on YouTube and the podcast episodes are also available pretty much everywhere that podcast stream. Um, so I also do, oh gosh, figure review videos. I have not done the Wonder Woman figure review video. I have finally got the, the Mezco Wonder Woman missing parts that I immediately lost. <laughs> Uh, finally got those missing parts in, so I will be able to finish her review video this week. Um, I did not get it up over the weekend. Like I said, I might. Uh, stuff happens. Life is chaotic. Uh, and without further ado, let's go ahead and, and get going with this. <laughs> if you are someone who wants to skip over the comic book pull list and go straight into the Bad Batch episode 9 and what I'm discussing for Harley Quinn today, you're going to want to jump to about 54 minutes in. I will be wrapping up the pull list at that point and moving on to the Bad Batch. As I said at the beginning, my comic book pull list is going to be discussed this week in order of numbers, uh, starting off with whatever number ones and annuals that we have going down to Monstrous 35, which is, of course, saving the best for last. So going over the list of just what to expect here, we have Barbaric number one, Parasomnia number one, Action Comics Annual 2021 number one, Green Arrow 80th Anniversary 100 Page Spectacular number one, Catwoman Annual 2021 number one, Black Cat Annual number one, Made in Korea number two, Beta Ray Bill number Number four, Eternals number five, We Only Find Them When They're Dead number seven, Black Widow number eight, X Factor number 10, Cable number 11, Vampirella number 21, Daredevil 31, and like I said, Monstrous number 35. That really is, but between Daredevil and Monstrous, I really am, I'm truly saving the best for last. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the best, the best discussion, but it is the two things that I am most, uh, yeah, two of the things that I am most, um, oof enthusiastic about this week. My brain just kind of stopped for a second. Um, I will be saving those for last. Not because I'm actually saving them, because they are, they're pretty high up there in numbering, 31 and 35. Um, so <laughs> let's go ahead and get started before I, I ramble you out of here with the top of the list. Barbaric number one. This is an indie comic. Um, I only really heard about this today as I was going over once again the comics that are coming out this week. I hadn't initially hadn't initially caught my eye, but paying a little bit more attention this morning, I noticed the cover has an axe that has a face on it. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And so I will read you the solicitation. It's basically just about a uh, barbarian warrior who has been cursed to do good for the rest of his life, and he has this axe that likes to eat people. Um, so it says, Owen the Barbarian has been cursed to do good with what remains of his life. His bloodthirsty weapon, Axe, I guess that's his name, has come to be, has become his moral compass with drinking problems. Together they wander the realm for, for doom to help any who seek assistance. But there is one thing Owen hates more than life with rules, witches. Welcome to the skull-cracking, blood-splattering, mayhem-loving comic brave enough to ask, how can a man sworn to do good do so much violence? 
Um, it says, ah, effing with you. It's just barbaric. Okay. I, I think that sounds pretty fun. <laughs> um, I am always looking for new indie comics. This is not by anyone who I am familiar with. This is Michael Morici and Nathan Gooden. I am not familiar with them. Um, I've never heard those names before, as far as I can recall. But, you know, you gotta you got start somewhere, and I am just... This this sounds awesome. <laughs> this really, honestly, sounds awesome. So, I'm pretty excited to have this hopefully be really good. Parasomnia number one is another indie comic by Colin Bunn. He uh, seems to be coming out with a lot recently, and I'm not really sure why. Um... I, I, that was that was poorly phrased. It's not. I'm not really sure why. It's just uh, you kind of notice when a creator suddenly starts coming out with a ton of stuff. Um, Colin Bunn. I want to say this is like a third indie series in the past two months that I've seen coming from him. Although thinking on it now, I do believe one of those was just a one shot for Eden. If you didn't read that, it was really good. I recommend it. Um, it's magazine format also, so it's extra large. Uh, Colin Bunn doing a lot of a lot of indie stuff recently. It's just something that kind of strikes me as interesting when you see it. And this is also doing art. He will be joined by artist Andrea Moody, who it says here, Starship Down and Prometheus. I am familiar with Andrea Moody from um, Maniac of New York, I believe is where I've seen her art. And it's very cool. It's, it's kind of a watercolor kind of look to it. I don't know if that's actually what she does, but I definitely enjoy it. To read the solicitation for this number one, it says, from Colin Bunn and Andrea Moody comes a new dark fantasy tale of two worlds split between dreams and reality. After his son disappears, a broken down man braves a nightmarish dreamscape in order to find him and battle the ruthless cult that seeks to rule the land of dreams as the barrier between realities starts to collapse. For fans of The Sixth Gun, Harrow County, and Lock and Key. I haven't read any of those three either. I know that Lock and Key is a fantasy series, I think. <laughs> um, but I I think this sounds pretty interesting. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm fond of the plot that follows the uh, you know, the, the different realities and the crossing the barriers between realities, that's always a lot of fun. Um, and this de deals with the dream reality, which um, I have always loved hearing people's, maybe not necessarily hearing, but discussing with people um, what the brain does with dreams and sleep and stuff like that. Because, you know, it, it's pretty well known that sleep is used to reset and um, kind of recharge your your brain and your body uh but then there's dreams and on a psychological standpoint dreams are not 100 percent understood why we have them um it's more or less understood you know that it's because of things that are affecting our thoughts you know in our un unconscious mind um but the way that dreams kind of come out like for example my my dreams for the past let's see, I want to say three years or so, two or three years, my dreams have all been contained in the same place. All of them. I have, I, if, if I was put under hypnotism, I would be able to walk somebody through my dream world and they would be able to draw a map based on the details I could provide because it's always the same set of locations. So you see what I mean by I am fascinated by how I could be fascinated by 
um, the idea of dream reality. So this this really strikes my fancy because of that. Um, I'm fascinated with all that stuff, and I'm I'm really interested. I loved Eden. I know there was another Colin Bunn series that I picked up. I want to say it was The Blue Flame. It may have not been that. Uh, I did not particularly enjoy The Blue Flame. It was very generic. Uh, but Parasomnia, I'm, I'm going to try this one too, see how it sits with me, because this idea looks awesome. Now going into the various annuals and specials coming out this week, I am most excited from this little tiny grouping uh, for Action Comics Annual 2021 number one. This is going to be by Philip Kennedy Johnson and Taya Um. Once again, uh, just a generic statement. I apologize if I mispronounce, when I mispronounce me eight people's names in this podcast. I am literally the worst with names and I can never even, if I learned how to pronounce someone's name, I will forget. I am the worst with that. So, um, anyway, Philip Kennedy Johnson and Tia Um, this is, uh, gonna be kind of following what Philip Kennedy Johnson did with Future State for the House of L duo of issues, or I guess it was just the one issue, wasn't it? I really enjoyed that. It had a great Diana Coletto cover, which I thoroughly recommend checking out Diana Coletto's art. We're getting off track. Um, I'm, I'm excited for this because it is Philip Kennedy Johnson kind of continuing the story, or rather giving us a little bit of backstory on that world he presented us with in the House of L one-shot. Um, I have this solicitation here for you. It says, The return of Future State's House of L. It's time to head back to tomorrow as Superman's descendants face a threat from today. This special tale connects to World World Rising as the actions of Clark Kent in the present reverberate, leaving long-lasting changes and a deadly threat from the for the House of L to reckon with. But Brandon Kent, the Superman of his era or can Brandon Kent, the Superman of his era, stop the danger from hurting the next generation? Also, for those wanting to know more about Brandon's relationship with Theander, the Temerian Queen, prepare yourself for a little romance as well. This, um, if, if I recall, Brandon was the older guy, um, who ends up dying and he has a daughter who was half Kryptonian and half, uh, Temerian. Um, and she, did I say that right? Tamaranian queen? When I, whatever, doesn't matter. Um, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, th I think that's who he was in that, in that one shot. If I'm mistaken, I apologize. But, uh, so there were, there was a lot of really cool characters in that story that Philip Kennedy Johnson and whoever the artist was in that, in that story came up with. Um, it includes, you have the twins who live on Earth and one of well one of them lives on Earth as the Superman of Earth at that time and then you have his sister who was a Blue Lantern and still Kryptonian. Uh, there was a dude who was like he kind of looked like Conan a little bit <laughs> um, or He Man maybe, uh, but he was still like a Superman type. Um, I don't know what do we call it? they're not Kryptonian necessarily. Um, Kryptonian blood must be, you know, DNA must be extremely intense because if they're thousands of years potentially down the line and still basically coming out like full Kryptonians, no matter what their DNA is, um, how watered down it is, that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm not following, I gotta preface this, I'm not following the current, I guess, Action Comics events not really sure what's happening in that. So this whole world world rising that this is connecting to, I'm sorry. I do not have a clue what they're talking about. I have to assume it has something to do with, um, the Superman or what was it? Superman? No, not Superman of Metropolis. Um, it was the super, it just the Superman world world rising, right? 
Was that what it was called? Hmm. Well, there was the bit... <laughs> I'm getting myself confused now. There was the bit in... Um, it was another Philip Kennedy Johnson, I believe, story. It was from Future State, and it was the one that covered what Clark was actually doing at that time, and he was trapped on World War World. I'm getting... I used to have a thing when I was a kid where my R's were W's. Sometimes it comes out a little bit. Um... <laughs> So this potentially connects to that. I'm sorry. I am so lost. I'm, I'm getting myself more and more lost as I talk about this. Uh, but Action Comics Annual number number one for 2021. I have no doubt this is going to be something that if you have followed that um, th those future state books, um, I'm sure that'll be enough. I could be wrong, though, because I'm not paying attention to what's happening in Action Comics. I'm just really enamored with this... Kryptonians for thousands of years in the future being super characters throughout the universe and interbreeding and still being supers and what do you call them? They're not really Kryptonians, are they? I I don't know. Um, whatever that is, I I'm excited to see them some more. Like I said, I really enjoyed that. It's it's a cool um set of characters and it's a cool concept in general. So I will definitely be picking this one up and reading it. We have Green Arrow 80th Anniversary 100 page spectacular number one. This uh, needs no real introduction. It's just the standard um, DC anniversary special. Nothing too uh, nothing too different than what they would normally do for that. There is a, some really cool uh, teams on it. So I'll go through the writers, the artists, and the variant cover artists. Uh, so you can get a good idea of kind of what style to expect if you're familiar with any of these names. We have for writers, Jeff Lemire, Phil Hester, Tom Taylor, Nicholas Scott, Brandon Thomas, Max Fiumura, Fium Fiumura, Devin Grayson, Mike Grell, Chris Mitten, and it says Laura Braga. However, Laura Braga is an artist, so I think that's a mistake. Uh, Benjamin Percy, Otto Schmidt, same thing. He's an artist. Uh, Marco Tamaki and Vida Ayala and Rombi Stephanie Phillips. Yeah, they messed up on this site. There's definitely a lot of these that are artists. <laughs> I'm 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 referencing a website here, so I apologize. That's we're not those are not all writers. I should have looked at this first. These are artists and writers. They seem to have just listed them all as writers for some reason. So those are the artists and the writers. Uh, for the cover artists, we have Neil Adams, classic, Howard Porter, Gary Frank, Michael Cho, Simone DeMeo, Daniel Warren Johnson, Jen Bartel, and Derek Chu. Looking at a couple of these, the Jen Bartel one is just classic Jen Bartel. It seems they're doing the decades variants, so hers is the 2000s variant. Um... I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm not the most familiar with uh, Green Arrow costuming, so I can't really tell you based on what he's wearing if it's accurate to that era. <laughs> uh, but we have the Michael Cho is doing the 1940s. Yes, Simone DeMeo is doing the 2010s. Neil Adams, 1960s. That feels pretty, pretty accurate. Derek Chu doing the 1970s. Howard Porter, 1990s. Gary Frank, 1980s. And Danny Warren Johnson, the 1950s. Which the Danny Warren Johnson one has him on top of a building like God's, uh, not Godzilla, like uh, King Kong, top of the Empire State Building. It's, it's very fun. So make sure you check out some of these covers if you're if you are a fan of. Uh, Green Arrow. I, I can't, have I said Green Lantern? Because it's not Green Lantern, it's Green Arrow. I mix my words up. <laughs> 
But anyway, uh, I will be picking this up because I am a fan of a number of those creators. Um, and if they have the Jen Bartel cover at my shop, that will definitely be the one that I will be picking out. The Catwoman Annual 2021 number one is by Rom V, as the series has been in general. I feel very meh about this. I have grown a lot more to respect and admire Rom V as a writer quite recently, but I still can't jam with his Catwoman series. I'm just, I'm just not feeling it. I try every time I get one. I'm getting the Jen Bar, uh, the the Jenny Frison covers, uh, because I'm obsessed with her art, uh, and I, you know, would like to support Rom V as a writer because he is a good writer. I just don't enjoy this. I don't see this as being something I, I would see Selena Kyle doing. Um, I do have this solicitation here. This is going to be following Father Valley, who is the new villain that Rombi has been pushing um, in the background, kind of. Uh, and I guess we're finally going to hear about him. It says, bear witness to Father Valley's past with the Order of St. Dumas and his unexpected connection to Azriel to learn that the method of his madness and see once and for all why Catwoman should be deathly afraid of being on his hit list. There was some more prior to that about how he, you know, waits until they're at their peak to take them down and stuff like that. Very dramatic. I just, meh. Very meh about it. We have the Black Cat Annual number one as well. This is, of course, going to be continuing with Jed McKay, and this is continuing the Infinite Destinies uh, story? Event? It's not really an event. It's a, it's a very, very mini thing that's happening to the side of the Marvel Universe that nobody really seems to be paying attention to outside of these exact tie-in issues. But that's okay, I guess, um, as long as you follow. I, did, I gotta admit, though, as I'm saying this, I did not actually, I have not yet read the Captain America annual that was a tie-in to this. Um, I just don't care about Captain America that much. <laughs> And I know that Christopher Cantwell is coming out with the, what is it, the United States of Captain America. I'm sorry, a lot of that looks like it's going to suck. Um, I know there's a lot of people who are really, really hardcore Steve Rogers Captain America fans. It's not me. This Black Cat Annual, uh, like I said, is going to be tying into the Infinite Destinies, let's go with story arc. And it was going to be co-starring, obviously, as well as Felicia Hardy, Ty Guki, um, who is a new character who showed up in Taskmaster along with Tiger Division, which includes Luna Snow and I want to say Wave as well, the Filipino superhero. And then White Fox is going to be in this as well. A number of these Asian superheroes, um, mo I wouldn't say the majority of them besides Taiguki, um, who is pretty brand new. He just showed up in Taskmaster like number three, which was just a couple of months ago. Um, the, all, the number of these Asian superheroes were members of the Agents of Atlas in the most recent Agents of Atlas iteration. I guess it would be would have been volumes two through whatever the last one was. Um, and that was by somebody who I really like, Greg Pak. Uh, it's by Greg Pak. Really enjoyed that. So I'm excited to see those characters pop up again. Uh, I have no idea why they would be popping up in Black Cat. Um, she must be doing something that they don't approve of, is my guess. I can't see them really teaming up. Felicia, um, you know, she, she, she has her heroic moments, but I, I can't see her teaming up with a team of superheroes, um, for really any reason. <laughs> Now we have Made in Korea number two. This first issue by Jeremy Holt and Greg Schall, the Made in Korea number one, 
it was really, really well done, in my opinion, with the mystery, dystopia, sci-fi, and mild horror elements. It was a really great, smooth introduction to the world and the characters that we're going to be working with, and kind of the the situation at hand. Even though we don't know 100% what is up with this little robot daughter that these parents have received, there's something different with her, but it's... Um, it was very easy thing to kind of pick up on this whole series. Um, and that's where a lot of the horror, the mild horror elements come in is the stuff that we don't know yet. We don't know what makes her, um, a different robot child. We don't know why the guy who made her hid the fact that he actually was able to do it from his coworkers, even though he'd been working on this project for a long time. There is something going on in the background. You can't help but feel that it's nefarious. So that's where you get those mild horror elements. The dystopian elements you get from, this is a world where people don't have children anymore. And so to kind of replace that need in people's lives, um, you have these robot children. Um, and there was a fun little one-shot, I assume, story in the back of issue number one that had a... Uh, it told the story of this little girl whose parents perished in a car accident and she was given one of these robot children as to have as like a sibling so that she wouldn't feel so alone. Um, and then, you know, she grows up, the robot child stays a robot child and she ends up taking care of the robot child when she gets older. Very interesting concept. And that was a nice little... And a nice little way to add to the development of the world without adding unnecessary crap to the story. Um, so Made in Korea number two, I'm very excited for. I don't know if I said the names already. It's by Jeremy Holt and George Shaw. Um, I just, I really think it's an awesome concept. Beta Ray Bill number four. This is Danny Warren Johnson's number four of five in his Beta Ray, Beta Ray, whoo. Beta Ray Bill miniseries. Um, the solicitation I don't have here because it's not really that important. We know that he's in Muselheim. It's the one that I don't know how to say. Um, one of the realms. Um, and Scuttlebutt has got them through a bunch of lava. Uh, is is pretty badly wounded. Um, they're probably still being chased by demon guys. And I will do have one line of the solicitation one phrase that I have here to quote, they call it the Righteous Horse Thor Epic, which is pretty accurate, I guess. Righteous is a good word to describe it. Um, righteous also would be a fantastic word to describe Daniel Warren Johnson's style as an artist and writer in general. Um, if you are not familiar with Daniel Warren Johnson, I, I, I so, so, so recommend you look into Wonder Woman Dead Earth. It's out collected. It's out in single issues if that's what you want. I loved this. This was my first encounter with Daniel Warren Johnson. It was a DC Black Label three-issue magazine format series that introduced me to Daniel Warren Johnson's art and writing style. And it's awesome. It is bonkers and sick. Um, I feel like there's some trends in comics. I won't name names. Tony Cates! Um, who like to write things that they think are badass, but then it doesn't really feel badass when it, it just feels like they're trying to write something badass and trying being the key word there. Uh, Daniel Warren Johnson does not try. He succeeds. Um, in addition, his art style obviously fits his writing in the most perfect way, the way that Frank Miller's does with his own stuff. Um, but it is... 
it is just um if you oh gosh the talent the talent is my i'm such an art fan and i <laughs> i love this i love reading it i love looking at it i love appreciating it i love talking about it even though i struggle with the words because i am so blown away by how awesome it is i'm just so impressed by people who can do art like this um there it was it was like the first issue and it showed his ship and just the the genius details and oh my gosh Oh my gosh. If, if you're a fan of Thor stuff or Beta Ray Bill or Danny Warren Johnson, um, please do yourself the favor of reading this. It is badass, heartfelt, tear-jerking almost in a way, uh, oddly awkwardly romantic for a few reasons, um, and just so, so much fun. So definitely, I, I so wish everyone to check that out. Eternals number five comes out this week and I discovered probably about an hour and a half ago This is only gonna be a six issue series. I'm backing away from the microphone right now so I can talk loud because I'm mad How come Marvel has not been telling people when they put out a mini series? It was Silk uh, Beta Ray Bill we kind of knew was a mini series so that doesn't really count But this they have not said at all that this was only a six issue series God effing damn it, Marvel. You gotta communicate with us what's going on. <sighs> um, I, sorry. Yeah. Um, this is by Kieran Gillen and Asad Ribic. I adore the series, hence the frustration that it will be ending next issue. Ugh. There was so much cool stuff going on with this, too. <sighs> I guess I kind of see how, like, it's a big concept and it would be a lot to keep going, but you know, please keep going. <laughs> um, so anyway, it's issue five of six. Ugh. Um, the solicitation has a short little line, just says, you know the forgotten one by many names, Hero Gilgamesh, Eternals know him by many more, often less complimentary. They include Killer, but did he kill Zurus? Well, failing that, it certainly looks like he's having a shot at killing Icarus, right? So I have no freaking clue. I know Gilgamesh is one of the um one of the Eternals. He's gonna be in the movie. Um, if you know you're gonna watch that if you're involved with any kind of that stuff if you care. Um we have not, as far as I know, seen him yet in the comic series. If I'm thinking correctly, he is the large Southeast Asian one um, who is going to be playing Gilgamesh. I'm terrible with names, as I keep saying, but that is that is the actor who's playing him in the movie. Um, not sure if that is indicative of what he looks like in the series. I know they've switched up a lot of things, partially for the movie and partially not, but anyway... Um, I have no doubt, just like it has in literally every single one of these issues so far, that they're going to do a fantastic job of explaining who Gilgamesh is before we, you know, get to the point that we need to know that information. They did it in the last issue with the, um, the little CD villain guy who is now teamed up with Thanos, which I just can't get over how cool this is. We got, we got, we got, okay, we got Thanos, right? Thanos is like kind of a deviant, which is like the bad Eternal. So they can come back just like Eternals can come back. 
Also, the thing with Thanos, he's been obsessed with death his whole life. And I don't mean he's been obsessed with the concept of dying. He has been obsessed with the anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic personification, or the closest that you can really get to that in the MCU, of death for his whole life. At a somewhat recent point, however, death has decided she don't want shit to do with Thanos anymore. She's mad at him. They broke up. So he can't die now. Death is the woman who, you know, she's death. If you die, she accepts you into her, like, kingdom. He keeps dying and she keeps going, hell no, man, I want nothing to do with you. So you see him, like, he's getting shot or whatever in this and it's like the, I don't think it's, um, my brain remembers it as bullets, but I don't think anybody had a gun because they're Eternals. Um, but whatever it was, was like the, the holes that he was getting shot with shit, they're just healing himself as he's fighting. So he probably doesn't even need to get resurrected. But we can assume that he was resurrected because remember, he got killed by, oh gosh, Gamora, <laughs> I believe it was, um, at some point. Gosh, it's so convoluted. But he's back now because of the resurrection, like, thing that these guys can do. And he is, like just kind of destroying people because he can kind of pop throughout the Eternals' kingdoms, um, use their transportation system in a way that they can't, and it's, he, he's causing problems. I know I got really off track here, but I wanted to also read the sixth issue solicitation. It's very short, um, and we kind of all know that this is going to come down to the Eternals versus Thanos, Really, as soon as we found out that Thanos has, like, continuing to just be chaotic in their whole system. So, the sixth issue solicitation, it's not really going to spoil anything. It just says, who loses? Thanos loses. The Eternals lose. We all lose. Never die, never win. Can that change now? Because um, remember, the never die, never win thing is kind of dealing with the fact that they can be resurrected from the machine. Um, and therefore, you know, it's, it's complicated. This is obviously a lot of really complicated stuff, but um, I, I just, I, I love so much how uh, Gillen and Ribic have been able to explain so clearly what all the parts of the story you need to know are before they get to that. So you go in there, you read the explanation of their history or whatever, and then you see the story and everything just fits perfectly because they've done the perfect job of explaining what you need to know. So I would, uh, this series, I recommend this for sure. If you're trying to get into, uh, you know, the eternal stuff, if you want to read something about them before the movie comes out, I, I doubt there's going to be another series for them. Who knows? I know I could put my foot in the mouth, my mouth and they, they end up announcing it tomorrow. Who knows? But um, this would be what I would recommend if you want to find out about the Eternals before the movie comes out, because they, it's just like, um, they do it, they set it up like how Hickman did the House and Powers of X, or really still does all of Dawn and Reign of X, uh, actually, uh, with the white pages. Karen Gillan does something similar with black and blue pages, explaining the history and world of and characters and everything of the Eternals. So this is a good series for people who are familiar with him, those characters, and also, brand new to it, kind of like I was. We only find them when they're dead. Number seven is by Al Ewing and Simone DeMeo. I'm a huge fan of Simone DeMeo's art. Al Ewing is a bit wishy-washy, but this is a series that, as I have said many, many times, when I see artists, or excuse me, when I see writers who I'm familiar with from the big two, Marvel and DC, going to quote-unquote indie stuff, and Boom Comics is definitely an indie publisher, 
that is usually my favorite thing that they will ever write, and that is definitely true with Ali Yuling. Empire was a bust, but we only find them when they're dead is is really got me in here. I, it's got its claws in me deep. Uh, this is the second arc of We Only Find Them When They're Dead. It takes place, I think, 50 years or so after the first, which is when Captain Malik, uh, he found the realm of the gods, the gods being these enormous, uh, gosh, fantasy sci-fi cre- beings, just people that are huge giants beyond giants. Um, he happens across the realm of the gods, and since then he returns to, uh, I guess, our reality as one of the gods. Of course, he dies the way that all of the other gods do as soon as they show up in our world, if not show up dead. Um, and that, hence the title, we only find them when they're dead, except for Malak, who found them when they're alive, and now he is a dead god as well. So, there's a lot of mystery here to be worked out still. Um, and his, uh, his, his, his young gay lover, which... I, I'm, I, the young part is what's messing with my head here. I don't care, same-sex stuff, like, whatever, but, um, why do comic writers always shack up older men with young partners? It's very odd, um, and I kind of feel like it's them living out of fantasy, and that creeps me out. So, (laughs) so anyway, his, his young lover ends up, I'm not sure at this point if he has started this church or has just become like an integral member of it because he knew Malik himself. Um, But he is now involved with this church, which surrounds basically uh, worshiping these supposed gods. Um, And there are now these two basically sects of people in this world, the harvesters and the worshipers. One obviously wants to continue harvesting the dead god's bodies for food and, you know, wealth and stuff like that, Uh, and the other obviously wanting to not do that and instead worship them. Um, Obviously, it should be pretty obvious which one the harvesters and the worshippers go to there. Um, So I'm, I'm very, I'm very curious how he, how, how in depth, first of all, he's going to explain what all of this is, or if this is really going to be a series where we kind of have to take a little bit of our own insight and ideas of what's going on um, and kind of use that to build the story and the answers of what's happening, if, or, if, or if we're going to get a straight answer. Who knows? Um, I'm, I'm curious, though. Issue A is the next issue, and that doesn't come out until August 25th, and that is the only issue that we have solicited beyond this one. Um, I highly doubt that we're going to get a five-issue first arc and a three-issue second arc, so there's probably going to be more beyond August. Boom just must not have the solicitations out for September yet. That was a big change I saw post-COVID was I always remember there being like a two-month difference between when you finally hear the solicitation and when the issue comes out. Now we're, we're up ahead at this June, July, August, September. We have September. I feel like they added an extra month. They kind of like are getting further and further ahead of themselves with their planning stuff and announcing it, which is great in one sense, but is also kind of not great in another sense because you could like, like Captain Marvel, I have spoiled the ending of this arc because I've read the solicitations for the two issues outside of the arc coming afterwards. So I know what's going to happen to an extent, you know? Um, so it gets kind of tricky, but uh, that could just be me. Maybe it's always been three months ahead and I just only started paying attention when they kind of were behind. I don't know. 
Black Widow number eight. This is, of course, Kelly Thompson and Elena Casagrande. I have been adoring this series. As we get further and further along, I have to admit, I see a lot more... Um, a lot more hard work going into Elena Casagrande's art than into Kelly Thompson's writing. Um, and I, as I mentioned in the last episode, I do get a little bit concerned that Kelly Thompson taking on as many artists, or excuse me, as many writers in the big two do, taking on too many projects that she's been offered because who would turn down the money? Um, and then that kind of affecting negatively the series that she's, the many, many series that she's on. Um, who knows if that's kind of, and, and I know her Deadpool series stopped and I know it's starting up again, but I don't know if it's with her and maybe that's what part of the same, my same, um, um, idea there. I don't know. But in any case, Elena Casagrande is an absolute god with art. Um, and I, I, every time I read this issue, I spend so long just looking at her paneling and her layouts. It's so beautiful. At this point in the series, Black Widow is running with Yelena Belova, who is, of course, the White Widow. This new girl, Lucy, who has unusual and brand new superpowers. And she also has Anya Corazon, who was Spider-Girl, um, or really, who is Aranya, working for her as a spy inside Apogee's, like, domain place. Um, trying to figure out what it is that he's doing with his workers or whatever, that they are then uh, either disappearing or ending up with these powers like Lucy and it just goes badly. So um, lots of stuff to learn with this. I'm just, I'm, I would say I'm 65% in this to admire Elena Casagrande's art. Maybe 75 then we have X-Factor number 10, which is unfortunately the final issue of the X-Factor series. There is a little bit of question. Now, I have not done any real poking into seeing if this is a valid theory, um, but I remember back when the whole X, <laughs> the, the, the terrible X-Men vote thing was happening and all that drama was happening. I remember reading Leah Williams' tweets, uh, which I don't think she's really been on Twitter since then, so I wonder if she got in trouble. But she was tweeting all kinds of stuff about, don't vote for Polaris, don't vote for Polaris, because all my plans for the X-Factor series will get wiped away because she'll have to join the X-Men and blah blah blah. Now, I wonder if this is actually ending because of that reason or because the Marvel heads wanted this to come to an end and have Leah Williams move on to something else. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. If you have any insight on that, please let me know because I'm really wondering if this can't, this being ended at 10 was always their plan or if this has anything to do with Pol Polaris being on the X-Men or that whole X-Vote chaos that happened. I'm curious. Let me know if you know. Leah Williams is the writer on this. I absolutely love her writing. And she is doing this issue with an actual trio of artists who I all love. It is Lucas Wernick, David Messina, and David Baldion. Those are three artists who have been on X Factor previously, and they are all just really, really great with it. You can definitely feel that they have a total understanding of what Leah Williams would like on the page, and it works out really well. Um, there's also, notably, a spoiler cover available for this issue that has not yet been released, obviously, because it's not Wednesday yet. Um, the solicitation suggests that someone might be dying in this, but that doesn't really mean anything right now because the X-Men still have the resurrection protocols. The only person in this who might die that would actually have a problem with that would be Kyle, who is human, um, or Amazing Baby, who is some kind of creature. I don't honestly know what it is. Um, 
So that, you know, it could be stuff. If they kill off Kyle, they're not going to kill off Kyle. They got to have Kyle stick around so they can, you know, still have him and Northstar be their flagship gay couple, right? They love to they love to remind people about that wedding that was probably the most unrealistic wedding in all of Marvel Comics just because, you know, Northstar's history, it's not so great. Um, pretty private dude. Why would he want a wedding in the middle of Central Park in the middle of the day? But whatever. I I will take that complaint to my grave. That wedding should have been very private um, and, like, literally underground or something. It still counts. It's still a wedding. It's just not at all accurate to have it be in the middle of Central Park. You would not be cool with that. Anyway, uh, moving on to Cable number 11, X-Factor's ending. I'm very sad about it. Cable number 11 of 12. Cable is also ending! This is not the last issue. It's got one more um, this, all we have for a solicitation is summers end. Some summers seem like they will never end and some end too soon. This is obviously a pun. They're not talking about the weather. Um, this is Nathan Summers is cable. So they're obviously discussing, um, teasing, I guess, uh, getting him switching to the other cable, old man cable, which, uh, you know, I think they're going to give us a fake out on this. They're going to make it seem like old man cable is going to return to be like the main cable of Marvel again. But really, I think it would go the other way. Um, it kind of makes sense that he would reject that or step back rather for young cable to stick around and be, the main or if not only cable and marvel because he's had his moment um i don't know it's it's very possible this is one of gary duggan's gary jerry duggan's several um several marvel comics that he has going on right now so um it's possible that it's going to be a lot simpler than i'm predicting uh but you i don't know i i'm hoping that we could continue to get young cable um, in the Marvel Universe as the main cable. I'm also hoping that we continue to get Phil Noto interiors literally in everything. <laughs> but in anything. I would take in anything um, because his art... I He's probably one of my top three favorite interior artists. Oh gosh, it's just so great. <laughs> um, so check out 11 of 12. This issue's cover is Young Cable. Next issue's cover will be Old Man Cable. Um, which just kind of sticks to either they are going to switch that out or they're going to fake out and make us think they're going to switch them out, but it's going to stick with Young Cable. We're getting down towards the end of the list here. Before I get into Daredevil and Monstrous, we have Vampirella, which is continuing by Christopher Priest with interiors by Ergun Gundas, which I probably said wrong. Um, this is finishing off the arc of Vampirella being on Draculon, which is where Lilith is, like, on trial. Lilith being her mother. Um, on Yes, it's that Lilith. On trial. Um, and things just kind of got crazy in Vampirella's trying to free her. Um, to be completely frank, this arc of Vampirella has been a little bit hard to follow. Um, I don't know of if it's the complex stuff that is very different about Draculon, um, or if it's the 
extensive plot details and backstory that we keep flipping back and forth to. I don't get me wrong. I have I've massively enjoyed Christopher Priest's Vampirella series. Um, this arc is just a little bit hard to follow. I I definitely enjoy his relationship that he's created with Vampirella and her mother Lilith. And that whole backstory and history. I know this uh, Secret Six is a series that's, I believe, still going that Christopher Priest has as a spinoff of Vampirella. I just, um, I couldn't really get into that also. Um, and I know Lilith and Vampirella have a lot to do with that. So maybe someday I'll go back and read that. But I've, I've definitely enjoyed the mother-daughter, uh, definitely frenemy aspect of their relationship. It's been very fun. Daredevil number 31 continues to be by Chip Zartsky. This issue has interiors once again by both Marco Cicchetto and Mike Hawthorne. Uh, Marco Cicchetto covers the electro Daredevil sides of the plot and Mike Hawthorne care, uh, covers the Daredevil in prison side of the plot. So to remind you kind of where things are going now, I, I have loved every single issue of this Daredevil series. There has not been a single snooze issue. There has not been a single issue that I would write off as boring. And every single time it comes out each month, I am excited to read it. Um, that should say a lot about how quality this is. It really is. Every single issue has been great. Um, this this current time in the Daredevil series that we have going on, Fisk, remember he is Mayor Wilson Fisk, he is currently harboring Typhoid Mary, who is kind of more just Mary right now. She's trying to heal um, after the events of the King in Black, uh, I guess tie-ins, you would say, uh, trying to heal once again after all of that because she is at, was at a better point than she'd ever been before, and that kind of took her down a little bit more. So Fisk is very, very mad about everything, pretty much, um, and he would like both Daredevils dead. We can assume that Matt being poisoned in a previous, well, either it wasn't the poison, it was him being beat the hell up in a previous issue, uh, to the point of death, apparently, near death, um, that was probably Fisk's doing. Electra, I don't believe, has quite run into, um, the people who would like her dead, but uh, it's no doubt going to become a problem because she continues. She's continuing to try to help out this kid who became an orphan during the King of Black event when her mother became a symbiote and got killed. Um, but she is having. She's trying to be a good daredevil as well. But it's it's just not as easy as she thought. She is the strongest of the strongest, and she is incredibly smart. But she doesn't think like the villains of uh, Hell's Kitchen think. Um, or the people really of Hell's Kitchen think, I suppose would be more accurate there because the like various CD underground people who she's trying to take down keep finding out ways to, um, not be ahead of her, but to kind of twist her intentions on themselves to make them look not so great from the eyes of the people of Hell's Kitchen. That's clearly going to be a problem. This arc, according to the upcoming solicitations, is going to end with issue number 34 in September, which is also the last issue that we have solicited right now, period. And I'm guessing it's going to be the last issue of Electra as Daredevil. It seems that she's going to be running into some problems with Bullseye coming up in the series. Um, and while Matt is still in prison fighting his own major problems, she will be Daredeviling it outside in Hell's Kitchen versus Bullseye. 
to wrap up the poll list this week, Monstrous number 35, the best for last. This is by Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda. I can never, ever say enough good stuff about Monstrous, but it is my go-to recommendation for people trying to break into comics. If that includes you, I rec- I don't care who you are, I recommend Monstrous to you. Don't give a shit who you are, I recommend this to you. Definitely. And it is a... It's especially great if you are a fan of anime or manga trying to break into traditional American comics. Um, it, it really fits into that the middle of that crossover of those worlds. Um, it is a. It takes place in a universe where uh, the world is matriarchal uh, to the point that you don't even need to have a man involved to reproduce. If women, if a woman is on her. Um, what seems to be their version of a period, she can get knocked up by having sex with another woman. Really, really cool concept, and it takes the alpha male um, existence, the ability for that to even be a thing, completely out of the picture, which I honestly love. Men are trash, I'm sorry. Um, You know, not all men and all that shit, but let's be real, men are trash. Um, (laughs) So, Monstrous is great. You have also, in addition to this incredible matriarchal society where there are not a whole lot of dudes in the comic period, um, you have witches, you have magical beings who are part, well, actually, you have ancients who are, like, um, giant animal people. Like, they're not, like, furries, but it's, like, a serious version of what a furry looks like. But not creepy. Um... (laughs) And then they have their descendants who are, like, less intensely cool-looking animal people. They just have, like, fox ears and a tail and shit like that. Um, And then you have these god beings who were wiped out some time ago, but who came from another universe altogether. And you have this main character who uh, has one that lives inside of her. And, oh my gosh... I love it. I just love Monstrous. Most recently in the series, we've had um, our main character's former best friend slash lover, Tuya, um, who recently married her aunt, not Tuya's aunt, Micah's aunt, her her former lover's aunt, um, who was also the warlord for her like tribe. <laughs> they, uh, Micah walked in on them having sex together. Um, and then it basically winds up with she and Micah run off together when Micah levels up. Um, I I enjoy lesbians in comics. I think that it is fun to see. Um, I, it's just another one of the millions of reasons why Monstrous is great. Um, also, I didn't mean that in a creepy way when I said lesbians in comics I enjoy. I, it's, it's more of a pro-LGBTQ plus thing. Uh, and a pro-queer thing. I, I like the queers. I consider myself one of them. <laughs> and that wraps up our comic book poll list for the week, if I haven't completely embarrassed myself. <laughs> um, I will go ahead and let's get going with the rest of the stuff, including the Bad Batch and some Harley Quinn talk. So, this week, this past Friday, we had the Bad Batch episode 9. 
This was kind of a fun one for, I mean, it was a really fun one, but I had just a tiny tidbit before I get into it here. My husband and I went to Trader Joe's before uh, we watched the episode and we picked up some stuff to drink and eat and whatever. Uh, and the, you know, of course, Trader Joe's, they always ask you what you're doing. And we said, we're going to go home and watch The Bad Batch. And she got so excited and we talked about it. And she said, oh, I'm, I'm saving up the next couple of episodes to watch all together on Empire Day, which I guess is July 5th, Revenge of the 5th. Is that right? Um and it was just a fun interaction. I love to find Star Wars people out in the world who are not just, like, made out of toxicity. It's great. So, this episode, I... It's probably my most enjoyed episode of The Batch so far. I get The Batch because Batch of Episodes and also The Batch of the show. Okay, sorry. Uh, we pick up from... Or if you remember, the last episode was Cad Bane... Hello, buddy from uh, Clone Wars. He kidnapped Omega and the Batch are actively on the run from a very angry, angry and severely burnt Crosshair, who was, remember, his their old dude who's got his chip. You, if you've, you know what I'm talking about. So while the Batch is able to get away from uh, Crosshair, barely, they are unfortunately forced at the same time to abandon their search for Omega in the immediate vicinity in order to do so. Meanwhile, Omega wakes up on Cad Bane's ship. She's in a cell below deck. There is a little robot. This is really cool. He's called Toto360, and he is voiced by none other than Seth Green from Robot Chicken, Italian Job, and other things. Really cool to have um, my husband and I kind of recognize his voice at the same time. It was really cool. He's, he's a big Robot Chicken fan. I've seen the Italian Job probably 50 times. I'm sure I've seen him in other stuff too, but that's what I remember him from the most. So that was really fun. Um, Star Wars is excellent with their bringing in Star Wars fans and people who are famous who we would recognize their voice of who have always wanted to be in Star Wars stuff because it is an institution. Um, they do a great job of bringing in those fun little unannounced kind of cameos and that was definitely I would consider that one of them for sure so Omega in the cell being the smart girl that she is she is able to trick uh, Toto 360 into letting her out in order to help with its broken leg because remember she is handy with tools of course she ends up knocking out the little droid one thing I want to stop here and point out though is although she does technically take advantage of this sweet little droid she herself has absolutely no negative intentions for the droid she only needed to get out of here she doesn't kill it she doesn't disassemble it or anything like that she just knocks it out for a few minutes um very gently and very kindly honestly too um so while she is you know looking at this, this as a self-preservation tactic she is still the very kind young girl that she's been pretty much this whole thing and it's i think that's very good to note uh after she knocks out the little droid she only has a minute to, to search for her communicator which has of course been taken before cad bane uh, starts coming down the stairs to her cell and she has to figure out another plan she's actually able to get off this ship which has landed in now i don't know it's not cloud city exactly because cloud city is um called Cloud City, I guess, but this is like some Cloud City-esque place. Um, it looks exactly like Cloud City, but it's abandoned. Uh, so they show up at this platform. She's able to get off the ship when he's looking for her on the ship. Um, they are here to trade her to the Kaminoans, who we learn 
um, at some point in this episode are desperate. We obviously know they're desperate to get her back, but now we learn why she contains the first generation clone genetics, meaning that she is as pure of a clone as Boba Fett. They are two of a kind. Since the Kaminoans are running out of Jango Fett genetic material to clone, which they mentioned previously, they did it, they have made Omega, and that was her purpose. This also means that they don't need her alive once they get her genetic stuff or whatever it is that they need. And the emissary who was sent to meet with Cad Bane was commanded to um, actually terminate her once that job is done. So, on this... Cloud City-esque platform. Omega is able to get her communicator that she found on the ship. Working for a few moments, the batch are extremely out of range, but she's able to get just a couple of words through to them. Um, they are just as desperate as she is, worried and frantic for her safety. She tries, um, when they suggest it to her, she tries to get the communicator a boost from the electric panel that's there nearby her, but that is when Bane shows up. He catches her and crushes the communicator. He takes her to where he's meant to meet the Kaminoan emissary, but they only find a dead body as Fennec Shan steps out of the shadows. Yay! Uh, Fennec Shan is uh, really awesome. Uh, I like this. She was in Mandalorian, and now she's in this much younger. Um, there's some awesome, really, really neat fight scenes between her and Cad Bane, who is clearly much, much older, um, and she is amazing for her rather newness and youthful age. So it's a bit of a, it's, it's a bit of a funny fight because it's, you know, the old classic guy, the old dog versus the young dog, you know, he, he's got his old tricks and she's just lithe and, you know, awesome. So, um, I, I, I did enjoy their fight a lot. The animators made really, really great use of their location, um, being on these kind of cloud city, like floating, uh, bases kind of uh, they did a great usage of all of that and both cad bane and fennec shan got out of the fight alive surprisingly because it looked for a while that cad bane was definitely not gonna make it out omega in the meantime is able to use their fight to get away communicate with the batch they they figure out where she is and finally get through to her they arrive in cloud city just in time to get her onto the ship and away from danger then they have to tell her what they, too, learned, that she is a first-generation clone. I have to add here, yes, there are um, some very valid critiques of her being a blonde white girl coming from, or rather, being a clone of a Maori man. Um, that it, it genuinely makes me curious if they're going to address her physical differences between her and Django and Boba. Clearly, she came out female instead of male, so there are going to be other differences, but it is a good thing to note and to be aware of anyway. My main thought on it is that for the majority of the clones, like the Batch, uh, they, they don't really resemble Django because they're a very watered-down, faded version of him. For Omega... Um, she's not that, so I don't know. It's it's a complicated concept. It's also sci-fi, so it's it's hard to um we'll we'll see what they do with it. <laughs> if they if they kind of solve that bit of problematicness that they've created for themselves. Um at the end of the episode we get another reveal as Phoenix Shan contacts Nala Say, who is one of the um Kaminoans, and it turns out that she was the one who hired Phoenix Shand. 
but the job wasn't to bring Omega back or to get Omega. It was to make sure that the Kaminoans never ever get their hands on her. Um, so since since uh, Omega was free from Bane then and the Kaminoans, Nalase tells Job that tells Job tells Shan the job is complete and pays her for her work. Uh, she's clearly soft on Omega and didn't want to see her dead. Uh, but I, I, you know, she's, she's more than likely going to pay for that betrayal herself in kind. Um, the last lines of the episode, speaking of paying for things, <laughs> were Hunter telling Omega that it was something along the lines of, we'll never let anything happen to you. We'll be here forever or something like that. Um, and it was something that just as soon as he said it, I'm sorry, Hunter, you're going to die. Um, there is no way that he's going to say something like that and not die. Um, he, he's got to be dying. <laughs> that that was 100% foreshadowing, and Hunter will be a dead man. <laughs> um, so mean anyway, they have escaped Crosshair for the moment, the the Bad Batch and Omega. But he's you know he's he's been through some shit, and I have no doubt he's going to come back even angrier with a mighty vengeance because now he uh, he has lost to them twice, um, at least twice. They they aren't also aren't exactly done with Bane yet. Um, if the Kaminoans still want to get Omega back, they're probably going to search for her her whole life or for as long as the Empire still wants clones. Um, so Bane, you know, he could be a continuing problem for them. There could be other bounty hunters they run into. Uh, the last thing I wanted to note here about this episode was when Omega was on this base thing, um, there was a clear Kaminoan research facility that had what appeared to be Kaminoan clones. So that really makes you wonder. We've never known what the Kaminoans are. We know uh, Kamino is a water planet um, and the Kaminoans here don't seem to be water friendly. Um, so are they locals to Kaminoa or Kaminoa, Kamino, um, or are they, um, what it kind of looked like in these cloning tubes where there were Kaminoans of sorts in the cloning tubes, it kind of looks like they were possibly all come from one base, you know, figure or person. Um, it's difficult to say, but I am definitely very, very intrigued by that scene. It felt a lot like the scene of finding all the warped Snokes, um, you know, on, it wasn't Mustafar, it was, um, Exegol? Yeah, Exegol. Um, felt a lot like that, but it was Kaminoans for sure in those little tubes. So it kind of, it brings up a few ideas, one of which is the Kaminoans being clones themselves, and the other, uh, being also they potentially were had to lot had a lot to do with uh emperor palpatine getting his own clone stuff up and running to make um you know all of, all of this stuff that we kind of ended up seeing in the in the sequel series just thoughts i don't know if that's going to end up being something that they dive into a lot or if they just wanted to leave that there as teases i would just i would love to learn more about the kaminoans for the final segment of this podcast episode, I'm going to be talking Harley Quinn. Not necessarily her current series, which I do recommend if you're a fan of the character, because it is the best series that she's had in a very long time, if not maybe since the first, if ever. Um, I, it's my favorite I've ever read of her. Um, but there's a couple of things here that we're going to discuss, um, including... 
her queerness, of course, is always going to be a topic of relevancy when she's being discussed. Um, her animated show and a new comic that she's getting, as well as DC's handling of queer characters in general. It's all kind of what we're going to be touching on in this little discussion. So um, to start us off, a few days ago, DC made a post on, I don't know if it was all their social media or if it was just Twitter, but what I saw was on Twitter. It was a post about queer coding, which is basically the usage of subtle hints for viewers to pick up on that a character is queer instead of having it being outright displayed or stated. A big example of this is PDA, but also non-public displays of affection, um, just displays of affection in general. It's it's really been a battle to get same-sex couples kissing visibly both on screen and in other media to the point that it was even criticized in the DC Pride issue that there was a lot of off-screen uh, romance and things like that that was kind of put to, you know, out of out of sight, out of mind, in a way that if you're doing a Pride issue, should definitely not be out of sight, out of mind. Um, what's interesting about this post that DC made is that it was an actual link to an article about leaving behind queer coding and being more upfront with their LGBTQ plus characters. What's interesting about this, they decided to use a photo in the post, I believe it was just in the, in the link, um, of Harley and Ivy kissing from Harley Quinn number 25, which was Harley Quinn volume 3, was the Rebirth series by Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti. The thing is, um, that was not, it turns out that what was in that issue was not the original art. It was a very awkward, um, image of Harley, like, side-kissing Ivy on the cheek, while Ivy's got her hands both wrapped around her butt cheeks. Um, so it was like, it was a very odd, awkward thing. Um, but today, or not today, but whenever this thing was posted on Twitter, the original artist of that photo, Chad Hardin, decided to go ahead and post the original art, whereas the final art was Harley, as I said, awkwardly kissing Ivy's cheek in a weird sideways manner. The original art was a full on-the-mouth smooch. The art was apparently edited without any of the creator's permission, post being okay to editorial, and then I guess somebody in the executive uh, circles didn't want that and had it edited very poorly, I might add, to be a somewhat cheek kiss instead of mouth kiss. Um, so that's, that's a funny thing that happened. Harley and Ivy's relationship obviously has been very difficult through the years. They've had a very... Uh, very uphill battle uh, into being made canon. In that volume three of Harley Quinn, where the series that that kiss happened in, it was Rebirth Harley, which I'm not sure at what point, but it fell out of continuity. Um, I want to say around the same time. It started, it was supposed to be in continuity, but, but then by, I want to say issue 30, it was fully out of continuity. It was non-canon series. So anything that was happening there and anything that really had happened in the, pre in the series previously was now being marked as not canon. Therefore, that included their relationship as in their romance. So clearly at that point, DC... That was only 2017. DC was not ready for the gays to be visible quite yet, I guess. Um, according to one article, there was that bloodbath in the DC editorial this past fall where right around the holidays they fired a lot of people at DC headquarters. Um, apparently that 
could have possibly been related to putting more queer forward stories in the comics. Whether or not that's true, I have to admit they have done a pretty decent job at reworking these hidden queer moments. Obviously, except for that thing the other day, my theory on why that still happened is because they probably, whoever was putting that picture in probably was not aware that it even had that history to it. Um, for example, the reason, the things that have been positive with DC's, uh, queer representation recently, especially specifically towards Harley, the animated Harley Quinn series, which is of course on HBO Max, had them specifically, specifically in a romantic relationship by the end after spending much of the series kind of going back and forth of if they loved each other or not. As far as canon goes, they finally came out and became a couple officially only somewhat recently. Um, and then, however, DC Pride, uh, at the same time, DC Pride artwork for the marketing of that DC Pride issue cropped Ivy out of the thumbnails to keep Harley, which in all realisticness, it could possibly just be for the size of the image that they needed, but it was a very specific choice to keep her out and to keep Harley in. Harley has also been a lot in Batman recently, but they have not really brought up the fact that she was being queer pretty much at all. Uh, the last arc that I read of the Batman, which I absolutely loathe, I think it's trash, her character um, was still obsessing for some reason over the Joker, albeit about killing him, and then she doesn't kill him. It was It was sort of laughed at in the recent Harley Quinn issue where... Um, she was talking about trying to kill the Joker and said, referenced that particular issue, saying even the last, even when I had the chance, I couldn't do it, which I think was trying to retcon what was happening there in a positive way because what was happening there was she was doing this really lame ass speech to Batman about if you're gonna if the Joker's gonna die, Batman, it's gotta be you. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> it was really dumb. Um, so, so there was an article that I was reading about to kind of cover, um, educate myself on all of this history and make sure I have the right idea of it. There was a really funny line from the article and it said, now, will the Batman comics catch up with this new spirit at DC Comics? <laughs> um, it was, I just thought it was funny because it's just compared to, it just, it just does not write women well. He really does not. And he does not know these characters well, especially the female characters. <laughs> Um, but in terms of all of this representation being so up and down, what it really seems like is like the creators at DC and the editors at DC are extremely pro-queer representation, but the executives are not so much. And to make it more strange that they keep hiding queer elements in the background, they are, as in the Harley stuff, they're doing a full-blown Harley Quinn animated series comic called, get this, it's called the Eat Bang Kill Tour. And the cover is her and Ivy making out all wrapped around each other. It's going to take place between seasons two and three. If Stacey is clearly so comfortable showing this and in her animated series, why do we not see this everywhere? Um, like, at the very least, we should have seen something like this in the DC Pride issue. We had very little romance in that. We had lots of talking. We had lots of hand-holding. But we had very little of the um, romantic couple stuff. And it was something that I didn't really pick up on. But Mariko Tamaki, who wrote the Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy story, she even did a little bit of um, 
joshing towards how DC has handled their relationship because Harley goes for probably a whole page or two, uh, goes through the list of things that you could call a relationship that's not relationship, uh, little puns and things like that. And that's kind of how DC has been trying to handle their relationship, um, kind of um, tiptoeing around it and referencing what it could be aka queer coding it but not actually coming out and doing it so it's just very funny they use that picture of harley and ivy that edited picture of harley and ivy when discussing not queer coding in any case i am more than excited for this series i completely love the show i it was just so perfect and i cannot wait for more season three of the show is going to premiere later this year or early 2022 we don't really have a date for that yet specifically but the comic is going to be coming out on september 14th we have only one issue solicited so far for september but that is as far as solicitations go right now so i'm hoping this is a series that's going to go on for a little while kind of like the batman animated series uh, uh comic they have going right now as well the creators on it are t franklin writing and max Sarin drawing i am not super familiar with them but i know that some early um, praise has come out about the art and the story that it's very good and very beautiful so that is all good to hear and we have a solic solicitation here if you would like to find out what that is it says Harley and Ivy on the road trip of the century following the wedding disaster of the decade Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy end up on the run from Commissioner Gordon and the GCPD but as fun as all of that sounds Ivy still worries over leaving Kite Man at the altar luckily Harley's got the perfect scheme to shake her out of her wedding day blues now, you remember at the end of season two, I was supposed to marry Kite Man. Kite Man uh, was a big joke because uh, Tom King kind of keyed Kite Man, hell yeah. And they kind of ran with that for the show. And it's awesome. He's got a legacy. I love it. Um, so then she was supposed to marry him, but then it turns out she was in love with Harley. So they end up shacking up together and taking off. But obviously Ivy's not a total bitch. So she's feels a little bit bad <laughs> about all that. Um so that'll be, that'll be really fun. Whatever this is going to be doing, filling in season two and three, it's not going to go on forever, obviously, because if it's going to, if it's going to stop before season three shows up, hopefully we get a good six-ish issues out of this, you know, um, whatever the case may be, I will definitely be following along the whole time. And that wraps up today's episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. Um, if you miss any episodes, they are available anywhere podcasts stream. And I will be back for a new episode this coming Friday, which is going to be July 2nd, if you can believe that. And on July 2nd for episode 24B, I will be talking about Loki episode 4, which should be premiering this Wednesday. I say should, it will be premiering this Wednesday. I will also be talking about my comic book picks, how things turned out from my comic book pull list and the actual read what I thought, and any other news and updates that we have for the comic book industry as a whole, comics culture, all that stuff. I love to talk about it. I love discussing it with you. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else, please feel free to like, comment, subscribe, share, rate, uh, review, whatever else you can do, and therefore um, more people will hopefully be able to access this and we will have a lot of fun kind of growing this community so in the meantime before uh until i see you on friday's episode have a great week stay cool it is uh, you know certain parts of the u.s are going through some extreme heat right now there's a lot of really really excellent tips for how to stay cool in extreme heat how to avoid heat stroke 
So uh, no matter where you're from, drink a lot of water and get sweaty about comics.